welcome back to yet. Why can't I hear myself again? Oh my, I can never hear myself. There we go. Welcome back to another edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online in the U.S. and abroad 24-7. Of course, you can always find the reviews and interviews on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, I am right here on AdrenalineRadio.com as we go behind the lens and below the line, film, TV, stage, music, covering all aspects of the creative process. I'm very excited today. Um, We have an incredible guest today. Um, This harkens back to, the girl can always leave Philadelphia, but you can't take Philadelphia out of the girl. And uh, that's one reason I'm very excited with uh, Brian Cavallaro, who will be here at about the quarter hour mark today. Uh, Writer, director, he's an Emmy Award winner. He's won awards for uh, commercials he's done. This is his first foray into the horror genre with feature filmmaking. And his new film, Against the Night, um, shot in Philadelphia, but not just in Philadelphia, in one of the most notorious and infamous, iconic spots in Philadelphia, Holmesburg Prison. Um, this is one of the astounding things that Brian has done. He, he's writer, director, and cinematographer. Uh, shoots a lot of the film with night vision. Really complex visual blend and editing going on. And a really fun story that obviously, uh, and I'm, we're going to find this out, did he have shooting in Holmesburg in mind when he came up with the story? Uh, but Brian will be joining us shortly, and I'm very, very excited uh, to have him with us. Anytime I can talk about a horror film, that's great. When I love it, it's even better. When it's shot in Philly at somewhere like Holmesburg, that make that's the icing on the cake. Uh, but, you know, before we get to Brian today, a film that I absolutely love this year, My Cousin Rachel. It came and went in theaters a couple months ago. It did its pretty much requisite one-week theatrical release, but it is now available uh Blu-ray, DVD, on-demand, digital download, My Cousin Rachel, starring Rachel Weisz and Sam Claflin, as well as Holiday Granger. This is based on Daphne du Maurier's eighth novel, My Cousin Rachel. You know, classic film fans, all of you at TCM, uh, most of you are well aware of the 1952 version of My Cousin Rachel, that starred Olivia de Havilland and Richard Burton in his first movie role. Uh, it was directed by Henry Coster, and it was written by Nunnally Johnson. Interesting pairing with Henry Coster and Nunnally Johnson. Uh, Coster, known for directing Betty Davis in The Virgin Queen, Victor Mature in The Robe, which, by the way, was the very first CinemaScope film ever shot. Harvey with Jimmy Stewart. Mr. Hobbs takes a vacation with Jimmy Stewart. Dear Brigitte with Jimmy Stewart, The Bishop's Wife, uh, Nunnally Johnson, a writer and a director, but known more for his writing, in addition to adapting the Du Maurier novel, also wrote things like How to Marry a Millionaire, The Dirty Dozen, Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation, The Three Faces of Eve, which was just on TCM this past weekend, The Grapes of Wrath, The Dirty Dozen. Very eclectic blend there. Um... But it was the pairing of Coster and Johnson that really gave some visualization and magnitude to Du Maurier's story of My Cousin Rachel. As I mentioned, this was her eighth novel. Uh, and some of the other films that were based on Du Maurier books include, <laughs> I think it had one of Alfred Hitchcock's favorites, The Birds, Rebecca, Jamaica Inn, um, which, by the way, thanks to Cohen Media, there is that beautiful, beautiful 4K restoration that is out and about uh, that came out earlier this year with a special screening, uh, screening it as part of uh, Cohen Film Classics on KCET. 
And I think there are plans for it to be out on DVD and Blu-ray. So I can't recommend it highly enough. Not only is it a wonderful adaptation of a Du Maurier book, but it's a great Hitchcock as well. But, you know, as distinctive as My Cousin Rachel has been over the years, I mean, because it also promulgated a 1983 TV movie of the same name starring Geraldine Chaplin and Christopher Gard. Now we have Roger Michelle, who's best known for Notting Hill, Hyde Park on Hudson, Morning Glory, Changing Lanes, a very eclectic palette. But Roger decided himself to adapt and direct another version. And there were two big challenges that he faced in this adaptation. Uh, Not only in adapting the script, but distinguishing it from that 1952 film uh, by Coster with de Havilland and Burton. He worked very closely with de Maurier's granddaughter, Grace Browning, had her blessing uh, with this project. And I had a chance to do an absolutely lovely, lovely exclusive interview with him uh, a couple months ago for the theatrical release. I knew we wouldn't get to use the interview at that point, but I knew that DVD, Blu-ray, and VOD was just around the corner. So we're going to break this down and let you hear what Roger Michelle had to say. And now, mind you, this comes from the man who brought you Notting Hill, um, now tackling this psychological thriller of my cousin Rachel. And first and foremost... And this will be clip 1A, Pam. Um, why this book? Out of every adaptation, why this one? Is there something special about this particular Du Maurier book that led you to do the adaptation? Well, I don't, I, to my shame, I don't know all her books, but this was really, this is really the, sort of halfway through her, her career she wrote this book, and it marked the, the end of her, of her uh, more famous books, if you mm-hmm. like, this one. She never wrote anything after this which had the same um, purchase on the public imagination. Right. Um, it just, it, it, these things speak to you in ways that you don't understand, I guess, and this one spoke to me. Well, and... After it spoke to him, the obvious question is, how do you go about tackling the story? I had great trepidation coming into it because I am one of those people that films that have been done in the past, you don't redo them. But as opposed to doing a remake of a film, you did a fresh adaptation on the book. Yeah, I never watched, I didn't watch the original film, Debbie, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. I thought it was probably wisest if I didn't watch it at all, simply because I didn't want to be influenced by it or to have a view on it one way or the other. I mean, the only thing I did when I was adapting the, the script, one, you know, one afternoon I was sort of, I hit a roadblock and I was a little uh, bored, so I, I watched the trailer to the original film. Mm-hmm. strictly by the book, which is where working with DeMaurier's granddaughter, Grace Browning, and giving permission from the estate and whatnot became very important. So how do you tackle a beloved and well-known book like not just My Cousin Rachel, but a DeMaurier book? What was that adaptation process like? Here's what Roger had to say. How challenging was it to to this ad to do this adaptation? Uh, De Maurier's books are such a great source of material for film, but they are because of her style of writing. They are very tricky. Yeah, I mean she's I mean she's very cinematic in the way that she writes prose. You feel that she's almost uh, got got one one ear or one eye on what a film of her work might be. She sometimes even seems to sort of write cutting points and cliffhangers and uh, she does a lot of lighting in her book. You know, there's often a lot of thought put into what uh, the atmosphere in the room is like. Is it candlelight? Is it daylight? Is it where's the light coming from? Is it backlight? Um, it, it's, it's all very, very 
filmy uh, in a really rich and uh, interesting way. But like with any other adaptation, you know, uh, it, 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 a lot of a lot of uh, what she writes is in, in vast paragraphs of internal stuff about what Philip, Philip's thinking. Mm-hmm. And obviously, as a as an adapter, you have to find ways and strategies for not only giving a, a version of that to the viewer, but also, you know, how do you how do you show on film uh, this idea of an unreliable narrator? You know, someone who progressively, one becomes less confident, is quite telling us the truth, mm-hmm. or is quite understanding the truth. You start off the film and the book thinking, this is going to be quite a conventional way into the story. This, he's my guy. He's going to tell me what what's happened, and I'm going to believe everything he says. Uh, but as you go as you go on, you start to see that he's complicated and he's compromised. He's had his old upbringing without women, without uh, without a lot of uh, intimacy, lonely, uh, vigorous, but cultish, naive, very masculine, and yet, and yet also. Oddly childish. All that, all that. I found all that interesting. That into this, into this kind of rather naive young man's life comes this incredibly sophisticated foreigner. Sophisticated partly because of who she is, and partly from, from where she comes from. Uh, partly her age. I mean, I've made the age difference bigger than it is in the book. In the book, she's thirty-five and he's twenty-five. And I, I, nowadays, that doesn't mean anything to us. That kind of age difference. So I wanted to make him feel more like that. More of a transgressive relationship between someone in their early twenties and someone who's in her middle to late forties. Um, so you really do feel like he's in some ways falling in love with his mother or his stepmother, or you feel that there's something there's something wrong about it. You know, mm-hmm. he shouldn't be having sex with his father slash cousin's <laughs> widow. You know, it's just not not good. And that's that's what's great to watch, and that's what's great to write and to play around with those ideas. Okay, and we will get back to Roger Michelle because right now, and my cousin Rachel, because right now, yes, we have, we do have Brian, do we not, Pam? And she nods her head. Yes, Pam Pam nods her head. Just <laughs> So uh, I am so excited to have this gentleman joining us today on Behind the Lens Welcome, Brian Cavallaro. Thank you so much for having me. I love your show. Oh, my God. Thank you. I love your work. Oh, thanks. I mean, this this is a real... Anytime I can, I can get somebody from home on the show, and it's a film that just so embodies life in Philadelphia over the centuries, um, I love having them. And you, a man who shot a film in Holmesburg Prison... I, I'm just tickled to death. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, this is, uh, I was explaining earlier in the show, you know, to people who don't know about Holmesburg Prison. I mean, this, I mean, it's a stunning, stunning building when you look at the construction of it, you know, dating back to 1895. Um, and I don't think when it was built, anybody would have ever thought it would become a you know a favorite place for people to want to film movies in uh so definitely not (laughs) yeah i don't think that was the expectation for you know anybody at the time and and there's a handful of buildings that are just like that in philadelphia uh Mm -hmm. that are abandoned and you obviously don't meet current prison standards but uh they're all quite beautiful and, and definitely very pretty to film and the fact that they have lasted you know, and this, I mean, Holmesburg's been there for 122 years now. And, yeah, and, yeah, and there are parts of it that are still active. You know, but not the very cool part that you shot in for Against the Night. You know, I have to ask you, Brian, this is your first foray into the quote-unquote horror psychological thriller. You have a ver- sure. You have a very storied resume, respected resume. As a commercial director, you've won Emmy Awards, you've done feature films, but you've, you haven't made that leap into horror. And that's something I find interesting, because so many filmmakers, they always try and, and do horror right out of the box. And you didn't. Yeah, I, you know, I, to me, it's the, whatever 
story is speaking to at the time, right? I mean, obviously, it takes a little bit to get a movie made. And if there's something that makes sense and that you're passionate about, I think that, you know, kind of helps dictate where you're, where you're moving towards, like how you're going to make the next movie. And, you know, for sure, it's interesting that you, you know, are interested in talking about Holmesburg because finding a location like that really, you know, the, the location existed long before the story did. Let's put it that way. <laughs> One wouldn't exist without the other. You don't grow up in Philadelphia and not know about Holmesburg Prison. I mean, it's that. That's yeah. There, it certainly, yeah. Certainly, the, the the prison systems that are there and and how they exist is, is definitely you know something people know about. I mean, that was some of the coolest stuff. You know, I mean, I have over the years. I've been to Holmesburg Prison before, so to to see it, I think the last time I really saw it utilized in a film was for uh, Up Close and Personal with Redford and Pfeiffer, but it was used for a, right. a, It was used for a completely different purpose. Um, but having been there outside of production, but actually been on the premises and been there um, covering news items or just touring the facility, you know, it has, you see the potential for a really good horror film where somebody makes use of the facility as it is, not trying to alter it or change it. And that's one of the great things that you do with, against the night is you it's more or less you have structured this very film around Holmesburg itself yeah totally and and you're right I've seen half a dozen movies that have been filmed there before that because it's a great space there's a lot of you know uh empty hallways and large soundstage type facilities holding facilities um that have been sort of repurposed for different reasons but yeah, I haven't seen anything that's really been able to use the prison for for all the you know, the, the good parts, the good decaying parts that exist. <laughs> and they are some really good decaying parts. So when did you realize you wanted to delve into this genre, into this telling this story, and when did Holmesburg pop up in your head? You know, is it the kind of thing that in the middle of the night in a dream, it's like, oh, Holmesburg Prison, that would be a cool movie. <laughs> or, you know. Well, I mean, a long time ago, I took a tour of Eastern State Penitentiary, which has that same sort of wheel and spoke design. Oh, isn't that a cool, and, that one's a cool uh, one, too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great prisons like this that I don't <laughs> feel like have really hit the public consciousness, especially in the United States. There's a lot of these in, in Europe as well. Um, so the first time I took a tour of that prison, I was like, this for sure is a, is a home for a movie. And then it just became about which prison was the best one to film in. And the first time I you know, saw Holmesburg, it was obviously the, the, the best, best case scenario. Now, did you have any idea of what the script would be when you saw Holmesburg? There a, you know, there were a couple of different versions of what was, you know, what made sense. Um, but I, I definitely, with the experience that I have in terms of non-scripted, I've done some ghost hunting kind of shows. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really wanted to lean towards that, right? Like somebody, there was a, a filmmaker interested in making a film there, and then, you know, things went wrong. That was something I could imagine very easily. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, you know, of the plot point there, of a filmmaker that decided he wanted to do you know, a ghost story movie at Holmesburg Prison um, and lures his friends there, as don't we all do that when we're making low-budget, no-budget films. Um, we all lure our friends there for for purposes like that. You know, you did an incredible job casting Luke Persiani as Hank, our filmmaker. Because he... I, I was very fortunate with uh, with the entire cast, but yeah, Luke, is, uh, Luke was a, uh, an absolute pleasure. Well, and he really gets into it. And I mean, I'm sure you know filmmakers exactly like Hank. I know filmmakers like Hank. And that really sets the ball in motion for selling this whole idea of this whole group of people going to help their friend make a film in this allegedly haunted, I still think it is haunted, prison. Um, You would have a hard time convincing the cast that it's not haunted as well. So you're on point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how, number one, how do you get a cast to agree to go shoot a film in Holmesburg Prison? 
you know, but people don't realize with that, that wheel spoke system, there really are no lights in these cells. It is dark in those corridors. You know, that I don't know if they knew what they were getting themselves into. You didn't have full disclosure? Oh, Brian. <laughs> Brian. Well, well, we we knew that it was, you know, an abandoned prison, but I, I think the first time they sort of went from holding to and the actual, you know, where a scene might take place and they were being guided by flashlights. I, th- I think that's when they really it really kind of sunk in. You know, how you know, how do you go about you know, I'm I'm afraid to ask how you got insurance for this thing. Um, I'm hoping, though, you did have a medical crew on standby because going through those dark corridors in that prison, as gross and disgusting and decaying as it is, you know, I'm sure that there were heart palpitations, you know, happening every few minutes. Well, so there are like there are eight um, hallways that, that lead off of the center corridor, and you can really only go down three or four of them. The rest are, you know, condemned, for lack of a better word. And the city of Philadelphia did a great job. I mean, not only did we have you know, medical staff, we had uh, police officers there with us at all times. And the city of Philadelphia did a great job of, you know, do's and don'ts. And um, and insurance for the film was a was a, an actual, you know, that was a thing. It was a, it was during the process of insurance. It was you know the bane of my existence, but certainly <laughs> happy happy to have it once we went forward. It, it definitely made everybody feel more comfortable knowing that we were doing the right things in the right places. So, did you have any of the cast want to bow out after you actually took them and showed them where they'd be making this movie? I don't think it was that dramatic, <laughs> but there was definitely some people in the cast that were a little bit more. Uh, they, they were all very good about, like you know, obviously they're supposed to look scared, so that helped. But um, you know, we were in between scenes. There were definitely some cast members that didn't like hanging out too long. They wanted to, wanted to get back to the the holding area. Hmm. So now you have your cast in place, you have your script in place. Was this totally scripted out, Brian, uh, in terms of dialogue? And also in terms of your visuals, were you shot listing, storyboarding? Because you're essentially working in darkness for the bulk of this. Um, Right. So I would think you've got to have all the details really nailed down. Yeah, The, the script was, you know, fully fleshed out. Um, I think it's thank you. It's a it's a compliment to question whether or not some of it was or wasn't. Um, I try to give the actors some leeway um, in certain scenes to, to really get across the you know the spirit of the scene. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it's all it's all there on paper. In terms of um, storyboarding, every anything that was beyond a dialogue scene, anytime there was any kind of running or action or things like that, that was very carefully planned out. Um, because obviously you're, you're you're right. It gets it's very dark and. Want to make sure that we you know, we did things the right way. Mm-hmm. And you know, and you did your own cinematography, so you didn't have to confer with anybody uh, in that regard. But did you have anything that influenced the look that you came up with for this film? Because you're utilizing, and I love that you did this. You mm-hmm. utilized to shoot to give the idea of the film within a film. You're using night vision. You're using flashlights. Uh, minimally, you have one cell phone that gets used before it's no longer used. Um, there are no windows. You really embrace this. But what kind of technology did, did that then require in order to execute your visuals using with this methodology? Well, it definitely worked in the sense that there, there's obviously a couple different ways you could make this movie. And, you know, we went at it with a low-budget, you know, genre film in mind. And one, and in that regard, if you're going to make an independent film, it's really, I think, great to approach it like a way that you couldn't make a studio film. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if a studio film would have let you get away with just using flashlights. Um, the Sony A7S is the camera that we use. Oh. It is an extremely well low-light camera. And after we did a few tests, we, you know, we knew we could sort of get away with the plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the first film that I saw um, using that camera, No Good Deed, I think Idris Elba and Taraji P. Henson starred and, and produced it. And that was one of the big things that they got, that they implemented that camera because it was done with totally, with no light at night. Um, and it, yeah. it really, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful camera. Oh, I mean, that's your, and the visuals, I have to say, they are 
gorgeous. You actually, you. you actually bring in, and this is what really struck me, is that we actually get a sense of color, of the gray on gray, the decay on decay, with the visuals that you have. And I thought that was a wonderful achievement for you to capture that because it, it doesn't look like just a plain, you know, on, you've seen them before. You walk into a set or you can even go to a location, but it looks flat. It doesn't look like there's there's no texture, there's no life. Here, you feel that life was here and it just rotted like necrotic skin and it's just varying Thanks to the color that the camera picked up with the shades of gray, you, we really feel that, and it adds a sensory aspect to the film. I'm, I'm glad that came across for sure. Was that something? Were you consciously trying to bring texture in into your? I visuals? was constantly trying to to not mess up what was already there. <laughs> you know, when when you stand there and you see it, you, you know that's the goal was. You know, you want it to feel like, you want it to look like it feels when you're standing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very fortunate to have a, a good color timer with me in post um, who understood that and, uh, you know, helped, helped bring it to life. Now, the shooting and night vision, does that, did that ad present any kind of problems for you? I think people run into the, sort of the same problems with night vision, you know, over and over again. There's, I was really happy to have the camera and, and at times used it more than it was even scripted to be used because, you know, Luke was operating the camera the whole time and he's a very good filmmaker in his own right. So mm-hmm. I was able to pull a little bit more out of it than I expected. But yeah, there, there are some colors and textures and things that, that didn't, you know, work with night vision as well as you would like to. So you have to improvise and, and you know, try different ways to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, there were some times we shot without night vision and then made it look like night vision in post to accomplish the look we were going for. Don't even tell me what scenes because I never would have known that. In oh, good. Looking at the finished product, mission accomplished. I would never, I would never have known that. You know, now did you have to do any kind of production design or set dress within the prison itself? We did. There is a scene that takes place later in the film where they sort of start coming to the end of their, you know, conclusions as to what might be going on. And everything that sort of happens in the third act is the, the structure is there, but then all the materials uh, that, you know, fill the room are, are is all production design. I think it blends nicely. I think that it was very believable, and that was all done by our production designer, Julia Eklund-Rudd. We did a great job. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about the production design in the exterior adjoining building within the prison walls. Correct. Yes, <laughs> yeah. That is. It's also part of the prison. Oh yeah. It's, um, it's, the, the structure. The structure is there. It's also there. But everything that's in the room is uh, was, was brought in. But you're right. I mean, the way you develop the story and then the visuals and uh, you know and the set decoration that you actually incorporated there, it really does fit. And, you know, going back to your script itself, you know, and you tie that in very nicely with your dialogue with your detective who is investigating. I mean, we're not we're not spoiling anything to say we got some dead bodies floating around here. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and, they say that, I think, in the first uh, five seconds. So, yeah. yeah. Um, spoiler alert. But you bring in Frank Whaley, who is fabulous. I love Frank Whaley. Um but you yeah. bookend the film with him questioning one of, you know, one of these wonderful young people who are helping their friend make a, a horror movie, a ghost movie. Um, and you have and he t- and the dialogue ties everything in together. And it's just so beautifully constructed with that bookend. Uh, you know, that I mean, it's it's testament to you as a screenwriter that you could write that and you could tie it together with the visuals without destroying anything. Thank you very much. And, and super happy to have, you know, Frank Whaley for that because it, it obviously those scenes get a little wordy. He's very involved in the exposition of the film and, you know, wanted a pro all along to help sort of tell that story and make it believable. And, you know, he's consummate pro. He, he was so great to work with. Well, you know, the way you, the way your story structure is done, Brian. Um, I really like your setup. 
Um, we have, you know, we have the party scene, the requisite, requisite party scene. Friends are partying. Yeah, one's a filmmaker. One, yeah, he thinks it's very fun to shoot his friends having sex and things like that. Um, but then when we delve into, and we've got the whole setup of the one person relaying without a flashback um, with sepia tones and things like that, we are actually transported and live out exactly what they lived out with a feeling that it's almost in real time. And I think that's a testament to you and your construct. Was that always how you envisioned to see this unfold as opposed to we just start with, you know, we start with the party scene, we start with murders, blah, blah, blah. That, that was always the plan, and I, I was a little nervous about that plan. And I, because you know, all, a lot of good horror movies start with a couple good kills in the beginning, and uh, you know, sort of you get led down that path. But I, I wanted to to really feel like you know, sort of one long sort of flashback. But you know, we took careful um, you know time to make sure that the the time code in the camera of Luke's camera is catching up in real time. That it's all feels like it just happened all in real time. Mm-hmm. And certainly there were some conversations about having, you know, flashbacks or flash forwards um, in the detective scenes. Um, but I, I, I wanted to feel the way that you're describing it, which is that it was just happening in real time. Yeah, it really it, it allows you as you're watching it to really become immersed in the moment to the point of feeling that, OK, we are there. We are in the prison with them as this is unfolding. And so much of that is because of your first person POV with the camera. Yeah, and didn't want to make it feel like we were going to use any tricks, mm-hmm. right? So, like, if you start in the beginning and there's some scary flash forward, then you feel like anything could happen. Like, you know, you might wake up from a dream sequence. But if you really set the tone early to say, this is all real time, this is all really happening, then the scares hopefully feel a little bit more real. And, of course, you mentioned tricks, but something that you didn't use tricks on and you used good old-fashioned storytelling and visuals, you create this great ambiguity, that just builds and builds and builds and shifts and shifts as the film goes on. How challenging was that for you to not just create ambiguity, but the way you throw that ambiguity at each individual person at different moments? And your wonderful editor, Kevin Armstrong, has to build on that pacing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was all pacing, and in that regard, I... This I totally push on to the cast and to Kevin. Uh, th- that th- The cast kept the parts of the story that sort of needed to happen to get you to the, the fun stuff. Mm-hmm. They kept it fun and interesting and authentic, and, you know, that's that's all on them. And then Kevin helped keep, you know, the pacing moving in the right direction and knew when we needed a breath and knew when it was time to get back into it. So very fortunate to work with, you know, smart people on that. Yeah, you know, I'm curious, what led you to Kevin? I mean, I, I know he worked on Bad Milo, which I still think it was very underrated. I loved Bad Milo. I thought it was hilarious. Um, but what led you to Kevin for this particular project? I had seen some of Kevin's work and, and you know, saw Bad Milo on his resume and had seen some of his work. And I had not met him before this project. Um, and so we you know, met and talked about it and talked about how it might go. And we both have the same idea of how how it would work, and um, you know, and then we just started working, moving forward, and it was it was great. I can't wait to do something else with them. So, how much footage? You know, you had you had the Sony camera as your primary camera, but then you also have other shots within uh, the film. Were you using other external cameras um, to pick up those spot shots? How did that work? And then, how much footage did you and Kevin have to go through to put this together? So the other shots you're talking about, we use the the out the the exterior of a camera. You know, there was cameras filming cameras, the whole mm-hmm. thing sort of very meta. Um, those cameras were all sort of prop cameras, mm-hmm. and everything that you saw that wasn't the A7S, that was all the handy cam. Mm-hmm. Those were the only two cameras that we used. So we just used that one handy cam camera for consistency, and it was also a 4K camera, so we could get a lot of data out of it and manipulate that later. Um, the you know we shot pretty sparingly for for a film mm-hmm. um so i don't want to say sparingly for this film but just for a film in general so having the extra footage was more to sort through but i think ultimately it, it kept kevin pretty happy because 
<laughs> almost every scene, you could sort of cut it together the way he envisioned, mm-hmm. and then go back and look at the handicap footage and see if there's something that would add to it or if we didn't need it. Mm-hmm. So how much good stuff do we have we may see on a DVD or Blu-ray? I am very much looking forward to just releasing Hank's movie. The, the, the movie that Hank made. Uh-oh. That uh- is a whole separate, <laughs> separate movie. <laughs> so that will be on the DVD and Blu-ray? Definitely. Oh, Definitely. my God. You know, but you have such an incredible... Uh, your cast melds really well into an ensemble. Because this is, even though they're paired off in, in little groups or for the bulk of the film, this is truly an ensemble work. And if the group as a whole wasn't working, the individual characteristics and how the story unfolds would not work. How hard was it for you to assemble this cast? It was, it, it, I mean, it, was, it seems now to be easy, right? <laughs> But there was a lot of Skype interviews that happened along the way. Um, you know, we didn't have the luxury of all being in the same city at the same time. Um, and there was a lot of Skype interviews to sort of get to, to where we got. But I couldn't be more happy. Um, and almost everybody in the cast, we didn't really meet until the first rehearsal in person. Um, a lot of it was really just Skype interviews and a lot of emails and talking about wardrobe and talking about background and a lot of conversations. And then we really got together, you know, the first rehearsal. And, and it was very fortunate that everybody was sort of on board with how we were going to make the movie. And not, no, not just how talented they were, but just how we were going to approach making the movie. Well, you mentioned something that so often gets shortchanged, especially in a low-budget, no-budget film. And that's rehearsal time. What kind of rehearsal time did you have for Against the Night? Because this isn't just a cast going onto a set. This is this has logistical challenges to it, Log- logistical right. safety we, challenges. Yeah, totally, yeah. So, yeah, there were times where we moved very quickly. There was, you know, there was a lot of trust that needed to happen, that, you know, with the cast. Um, and so we, um, you know, unfortunately, just for budgetary reasons, of course, nobody, everybody wants to have more time than they than they have. But we just essentially spent one night together to to kind of. A, get our body, you know, clocks working correctly because we shot overnights. So, we, you know, we got together, we read the script, um, we talked a lot, we sort of, you know, pushed certain characters in some directions and, and pulled some other characters back. And then, you know, and then we just sort of went forward and then worked with it based off of that, you know, blueprint. You know, we tried to stay loose when we were actually shooting. Wow. So how many days did you actually have to shoot? We shot in eight days. Eight whole days, huh? Oh, let's call it eight whole nights. Oh, my God. Talk about a speed run. That is incredible. Yeah, I don't know if I would have been able to go that fast if I wasn't holding the camera and if uh, we were using, you know, a a lot of setups for lights. Mm -hmm. That really helped a lot. I had a really good gaffer with me named Christian Buffo who, you know, kind of helped point the flashlights in the right direction and, and add some fill when we needed it. And then, you know, if I had to take a lot of time to communicate with a gaffer or a DP, it obviously wouldn't have been able to happen so fast. That's uh, That just, that astounds me that you shot this in eight days or eight nights rather. Oh my God. And that, that now that's something else I find really fascinating is that you're in a prison that is already dark in daylight. It's dark. And you're shooting in night, yeah. so you're making it even darker. You're not even getting ambient light from the sky coming through in the rotunda area. Very dark. <laughs> Very dark. Uh, I got to ask you, when did Mike Mendez come on board as one of your producers? I adore Mike. Uh, Mike just did the show not too long ago for his latest film, Don't Kill It, with Dolph Lundgren. Isn't that movie great? Oh, my God. I want to see that turned into a franchise. I bet I bet everybody does. I do. Oh, I do my. Sure. Dolph is just fabulous in it. I know he's willing to do a franchise. But Mike, I just, yeah, I, I love Mike's work. And when I saw that he was tied in with this as one of your producers, I was like, okay, well, this explains something. Right. Sm- smart people so are working Mike together. Not, yeah, Mike is not like Kevin Armstrong. Mike is somebody I've known for a very long time, years and years and years. And, and so we've been friends. And he sort of helped 
guide me. We were working on another project together when uh, Don't Kill It got greenlit. And, you know, we just talked about what the process was like and the kind of movies he would li- he likes to make, which Don't Kill It was right up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was excited about it. And, you know, I sort of just fed off of his passion. It was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do something like this, too, if you don't mind helping, you know, sort of walk me through it. And, you know, and he did more, more than that. So what was very lucky to have him on board. What was the learning curve like for you jumping into this genre? I, I tried not to, you know, feel like I knew, knew everything, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, I had another producer with me, Ariel Braxfeld, who was is very experienced in the genre. And she came, you know, with me to Philadelphia. And lack of a better term, babysat me and said, you know, maybe this instead of that. And, you know, this this would work here instead of there. And it was a very good sounding board for me. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think it's important if you're not very, you know, experienced in the genre to, you know, understand, you know, tropes and do's and don'ts and, and then learn, at least know what it is when you're trying to break it. Mm-hmm. Were you setting out to break a lot of the tropes when you made Against the Night? I, I, I wanted it to be, you know, just pure entertainment. Obviously, the story is, is something similar to what we've seen before. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanted it to be self-aware without, you know, being too cheeky. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully we got to that point where it really just felt like it seems possible that somebody would want to make a movie in this prison and that they would go in and that this could happen. And it wasn't all done just for cheap thrills. Well, you know, as my brother texted me this morning when I said, hey, isn't it ironic? Interviewing a filmmaker, he he shot, made his horror film in Holmesburg Prison. He texts back, doesn't every filmmaker make a film in Holmesburg Prison? So, <laughs> okay, he he answered your very comment right there, you know. It's like, <laughs> okay, it's not cheesy. Everybody does it. So, you know, it was, it, you really avoided falling into repetition, repetitious tropes, though, Brian. And a lot of that, I, I think, goes also to your cast. You know, one of your standouts, and I have to, I've got to ask you about him. Josh Kahn is Dan. That, he was yeah. like the loose cannon outside of Luke's Hank. You know, the way that you and Josh developed the character of Dan. Dan could have gone either way in this film. I'll tell you, it's, it, it, you're, you're absolutely right, too, first of all. I mean, we, first of all, I was excited every time he had a scene that came up. You know, there's, uh, there, you always, you know, have actors that you're like, okay, we've got a scene together you know, with this character. What are we going to do now? And Josh and I talked quite a bit and worked quite a bit together about how sort of far his character could go mm-hmm. or should go. And to make him, and to keep it believable as well. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of comedy left on the floor with him because it gets to a certain point where it's like, would he make a joke here, you know? Yeah, and I have to admit, in the one scene where he's going up the stairs into the, you know, up the stone stairs, you know, into the dark beyond around the corner, and you see a shadow from a flashlight and you hear noises, and I'm thinking, okay, he's trying to scare the hell out of the two girls that are down on the ground. And, you know, that's what I was thinking. That's what I kept thinking is that he's being a buffoon and he's really just trying to milk this with the girls around there. And I, uh, but then you turn us in a totally different direction. And I was second guessing myself as to where this character of Dan was going. And I always like surprises like that. Instead of going with the predictable, I like the surprises. And you really deliver quite a few surprises like the character of Dan. So, oh, good. I'm know, sure he would be happy to hear that, too. Yeah, I mean, it shows how much thought you put into the making of this film. Now, I have to, how excited are you? film is finally coming out this week. I, I couldn't be more excited. I, I, honestly, there's no point in time that, that we thought that this would get, you know, released in theaters. Uh, we would have been perfectly happy with a, a nice, small release. Um, and just for people to see it. So it's definitely, you know, outperforming expectations, and you know, we're all very, very excited. And the city of Philadelphia didn't give you a big premiere at Holmesburg Prison? <laughs> you know, they, they may have, but 
and we even thought about it, right? We're like, what would that look like? And I think we all sort of decided it's not a very fun, comfortable place that we'd want to bring people back to. <laughs> well, you could have done it as a block party out on the street, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or in, or, in, or in the prison yard. Yeah. So now, <laughs> so now that you have, you know, that, that would work, wouldn't it? That that prison yard, <laughs> just, you know, for if people are interested, is active. There, that yard that we actually filmed in during operating hours when the day when the sun is out, there are prisoners out in that yard during the day. And just so nobody gets the wrong idea, there are no prisoners in Holmesburg Prison. Not that I know of. No, it was shut down in 1995. Well, yeah, that's yep. that. There could have been well, some, the, the, the inside. Yeah. There could have been some left inside there. You know, we never know. Right, well, a lot of different stories could be told from in there. And there are lots of different stories that have been floating around Philadelphia for over a century about that prison. So, yep. who knows? But now that you have you have now ventured into the horror thriller genre and succeeded very well in bringing this to life, what did you learn about yourself in the making of this particular film that you'll now take forward into future projects? And will you go back and maybe revisit Holmesburg or some other prison again? I, you know, I had such a good time with this that I, and I think that there are a lot of other stories to be told around Holmesburg and sort of around this story even that I would be more than happy to go back and, and revisit this. And I think, you know, I, I learned the most just from the challenges that were presented, and it kind of makes it seem, you know, in a bigger budget film, it seems like those challenges aren't so bad, right? So you're able to approach it and kind of with more confidence. And so that was probably the biggest takeaway. Mm-hmm. So now what kind of what kind of future films might you see coming out of this one? Well, there is some some of the path of Holmesburg I'm very interested in, mm-hmm. and in terms of how the film ends, I'm very interested to see oh. what might happen afterwards. Oh, you know, the final shot of the film, and I'm sure and I'm not going to give it away, but all I can say is it immediately immediately took me to a very famous scene in another film that starred an amazing female action hero. You're, you're good at the vagueness, too. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, I was just like, uh, you know, that just, that just, ki- uh, that was killer for me. That was just, it was like you want to sit there and do a fist pump when you see that scene. <laughs> and right away, it's like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for the sequel. I mean, well, wouldn't that be great? Oh, you have it set perfectly to move into a sequel. And I can't wait for fans to see this film and recognize, you know, that element of this other very famous franchise. Um, because that's immediately what I thought. But then also you have some other effects in there. Yeah, it's. I don't think we're giving away anything if we say that you know there are old gas masks and things within the prison because of things that used to right. be done in the prison. Um, but you really got very creative and inventive utilizing them within the construct of the film and within plot points. And there again, you've got visual reference touchstones to other iconic moments in films. And I really, really appreciated that, that you put that kind of time and thought into this, which is another thing that takes you away from being just a cheesy horror film. It's all these Thank little... Thank you, yeah. It, the details, Brian. You put the details in. It definitely helps, as you say, having touchstones and, and things that people can reference so that you don't have to put all the work in. You know, they see an image and they sort of know what it means because it's, it's sort of built into you. So I've got one more question for you before I let you go. Um, I want to ask you, because the city of Philadelphia is known for its generosity with tax credits. state of Pennsylvania is good, but Philadelphia is even better with their tax credits. Do those tax credits filter down and work well for a low-budget film like Against the Night? We were low-budget enough that it didn't, it didn't affect us uh, a great deal, but there are 
policies of how to how you can shoot a low budget film far exceeds you know far made up for that. Um, they don't uh, they don't push around low budget filmmakers. They want you there. Um, they'll make it work for you. And the the film commission there was absolutely fantastic to work with, and you know made it possible. Really, I mean, you can imagine them or anybody saying, you know, it's probably not a good idea to shoot in this prison. And if you did, it would cost you a lot of money. But they make it work for you. They'll, they'll, they're very good. Yeah, I know. Robert Lukatic, when he shot in Philly, um, he said it was absolutely phenomenal dealing with the Film Commission in the city of Philadelphia, uh, getting what he yeah, wanted, what he, need, what he needed. And as you said, they want you to see your vision. They want to try and work with you. It's like they're not slapping the handcuffs on you. And say, like back in the Rizzo days, of you know, no, we're just gonna sl- <laughs> we're gonna slap the handcuffs on you, and we're gonna tie you down. So no, you have to conform to what we'll let you do, rather than us working with you, so that we can help you make happen what you want to have happen. And everybody, every filmmaker I know that has been that has been working with the Film Commission in Philadelphia the past twenty years easily, just raves, raves, and it's. Also, for what you're saying, they want you to succeed and make what you want to make. They want to help you bring your vision to life. And there's not too many film commissions um, that I think do that. Right. Not as well as them. That's for sure. Uh, Brian, thank you so much. When will we have our DVD and Blu-ray out with our our movie, According to Hank? January. <gasps> So it'll be available. We'll be able to pre-order for Christmas, though, uh, for sure. That I was just going to say, a perfect pre-order Christmas gift. <laughs> oh well, Brian, this has been an absolute delight. I am so thrilled. Thank you so much for joining me on Behind the Lens today. And I thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope you will come back. I would love to have you come back when the uh, DVD Blu-ray comes out, and we can for sure. we happy can to be back. Talk about all your extras. <laughs> all separate movies now let's talk about those all right well everybody can see against the night for more information go to what against the night.com and in theaters do we know how many cities it's in this this friday 10 cities 10 cities is philadelphia one of them of course (laughs) i was gonna say so it's la new york philadelphia and a few other choice ones Everybody needs to go see Against the Night. It is a perfect, perfect film as we head into the fall where things go bump in the night. Oh, Brian Cavallaro, thank you so much. Thank you again. Really appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Brian Cavallaro, writer, director, cinematographer, and producer of Against the Night. Let's see, what do we have time for, Pam? We have time for one more clip. Um, Do we have time for clip number four? I didn't write down how how long these clips are. She has the times. Okay, well, we're going to jump back to my cousin Rachel and Roger Michelle, and we're going to hear... Roger, talk about the cinematography. The cinematography of My Cousin Rachel is absolutely stunning. Again, one of my favorite words in filmmaking when we have horror, when we have suspense, is ambiguity. And ambiguity is a very important part in De Maurier's books and in film adaptations as we see the, the differences between dark and light in production design and tone, light and shadow and color all comes into play. So let's hear what Roger Michelle had to say about cinematography in My Cousin Rachel. You know, I'm curious about your cinematography, because as you mentioned, with, within Daphne's books, they are very cinematic in the description. Mm-hmm. And here we now have what you and Mike have done with the cinematography, concentrating on the framing, the use of light and shadow. You have some beautiful sequences where you make great use of negative space. But then your use of candlelight versus daylight and then using that light to open up and really tell us a lot about each character. Louise's home, it's very, it's very open, big windows, yeah. it's bright, 
Philip's home initially, it's very dark, gray, brown, dirty, dingy. Then we have Rachel come in and things start to freshen up. There is more light. And we actually see more candles come out. Uh, yeah. The windows open. But that plays so much into the beauty of what the visual appeal is. And That's, and right. That's a very smart question. That's a smart observation. Yeah, you're right. The candle's house is straight out of the Enlightenment. It's symmetrical. It's got big, big walls of light that stream into rooms to illuminate the world and to illuminate argument and to illuminate the new, the new understanding of uh, how the world might work. Whereas Philip's home, to begin with, is almost medieval, certainly Elizabethan. It's it, uh, very dark, it's dirty, it's cluttered, it's crowded, it's uh, covered in dust. And oddly, you know, the, as, the, as the plot gets darker, his house gets lighter, mm -hmm. as you pointed out. Uh, she brings a different sensibility to bear um, and clears away the... Uh, the, um, the the kind of Miss Havisham um, sort of dusty um, curtains and drapes tears them down, and in their place there are uh, there's space and there are less objects and there are light walls and as you as you say there's literally more light, more candles, mm -hmm. more um, more lamps, etc. etc. And. I think that, is that all the time we have, Pam? Oh, we can do one more. Oh, well, isn't, the, we're doing well today. Well, then let's go to clip number five. And continue. This is such mastery in terms of keeping everybody on tenterhooks with this wonderful game of, of chess that's being, an emotional game of chess being played. How challenging was the editing process for you to find that balance and to keep, you know, suspicion bouncing from person to person yeah. to person. Yeah. I think I think it's you know obviously it's something you try and get right in the in the script, and I got it almost right in the script. But there was another rewrite in the cutting room, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. The final rewrite is always in the cutting room, and I was really helped by the score. You know, so I, I, the score ended up being a, a really important tool for me as a director in keeping that story uh, pulsing, if you like. Mm -hmm. Rail Jones. Uh, uh, so I lent I lent on rail quite 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 heavily, more than I would normally do in a film. Mm -hmm. And I understood how in these films about suspicion and these films, these psychological thrillers, I understood how important uh, music is and should be. Well, I, I think that Rail's score is absolutely stunning. Yeah, me too. I mean, uh, there's so many undernotes and undercurrents with it, and you use it very judiciously as well. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, I think there's not too much of it, but it's, it really is telling whenever it, whenever it arrives. And there we have it. So we've, we've heard all about Holmesburg Prison. And Against the Night, again, it is in theaters in 10 cities this Friday, September 15th, uh, written, directed, cinematography by Brian Cavallaro. I can't recommend it highly enough. It is fun. It is entertaining. And yes, there are some terrific jump out of your seats moments. And filmmakers, um, I can't encourage you enough to check out the film because of the visual composition uh, and what Brian employs and using that Sony uh, camera for the low light situations. Um, and of course, you got to hear about Roger Michelle creating My Cousin Rachel, uh, 2017 version. So next week, Elizabeth Blue is going to be joined. Uh, the director of Elizabeth Blue is going to be joining us along with uh, Dwight Little to talk about his new film, Last Rampage which stars Robert Patrick. It is off the charts. Incredible. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>